and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. You're going to have to excuse my raspy voice today. I'm dealing with a cold. So before I introduce my guest, I have to tell you that this episode is one of my favorites because it speaks to me on such a personal level. It's also the hardest, most vulnerable conversation I've had with a guest since I started the podcast. I know the conversation was God-ordained because the Lord used my guest today to speak to me like no other guest has at a time when my heart most needed it. Many of you know my dad passed away suddenly and unexpectedly in early January. This journey through grief has been one of the hardest, if not the hardest, chapter of my story. My guest today has also experienced her share of grief and darkness in her own journey, but she so graciously shared with me these hard parts of her story to speak to me in the midst of my own pain. My guest today is Sheila Walsh. Much of Sheila's life has been sent in service to the Lord through her books, worship music, and TV broadcast career. But Sheila's stories also filled with chapters of sorrow, grief, shame, and powerful attacks from the enemy. So today, Sheila and I talk about her journey through grief, sorrow, and the power of prayer in the midst of our darkest times. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Her Story Speaks podcast. I've been looking forward to it, Andrea. Well, I have to tell you, I I have, like I kind of mentioned, I've had a month not expected, and I actually canceled all interviews this month, and I just feel like it's a God thing that I'm talking to you today. You're the first one I've done. My dad passed three weeks ago unexpectedly. Oh, I'm so it, sorry. Uh, and so and I told myself I'm not going to cry today. I feel oh. like you're like, did I get into a therapy session here? No, no. But I, I feel like it's God's timing because literally it was the week after and I was on my email for the first time, like canceling all my interviews and yeah. your PR person sent an email about interviewing you. And I was just like, it made me pause because I'm like, I know she has a hard story and I know that is probably a story I need to hear selfishly and that could speak to me. So I just feel like it's a God thing. And I dug into your books in the middle of the mess and it's okay not to be okay. And they have just been, you've just been ministering to my heart the last couple of weeks. So I'm grateful Mm. to talk to you today, Sheila. Andrea, I am, I cannot tell you how sorry I am for your loss. Mm. I mean, particularly when it was an unexpected there's nothing that prepares you to lose your father uh it was sheila and um you know opening the first pages of your book in the middle of the mess and i had not read that one before but it opens with your letter to your father and i was just like oh my gosh i wasn't expecting that Mm. and yeah it was a total unexpected i uh Hugged him goodbye at the week after Christmas, and a week later, he had a ruptured aneurysm and died oh. that evening. And it was, oh my gosh, we're all in shock. And that's what I want to talk. It's not. This is not about my story, but I just wanted to clue you, and I'm where I'm, where I'm at. And yeah. this is my first interview after it, and I just think it's God's timing. So, how's your mom doing? She is with us right now. She's having a really hard time. I can't she, imagine. Um, I stayed with her for two weeks after and then she was home for a few days and then she just came to the state is with us now so Mm. he was 69 so young gosh he did not have you know and I think just like I mean your mom I know your mom has passed too and we'll get into that with your story like you just don't think you just and I always assumed we'd have 10 20 years and yeah 
we'd be prepared for it happening. Right. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been a journey, but I want to thank <sighs> you. Your vulnerability has helped me and I know has helped others. So this is a weird, this is a weird intro, Sheila. So I'm sorry. No. This is not, not the norm. But this is, honestly, Andrea, this is holy ground. I mean, this is where we live our lives. If we can't be there for one another in the midst of our pain and our darkness, then we've totally missed who Christ says we are and who we are to be for one another. Yeah, I, you are so right about that. And I even, like I mentioned your book, In the Middle of the Mess, uh, I bought my mom a copy of that too, because I'm like, you've got to read this, mom. Like this, I just think this will speak to your heart right now. Mm-hmm. And and you're, it's okay not to be okay. I know today we're going to talk more about your book you have coming out, The, Power, the Praying Woman, um, and that's a powerful one too. And as a woman who's walked through so much of this, Sheila, I just want to thank you again for your vulnerability and talking today. Thank you. You know, I kind of take my template for ministry from Paul. When he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, we determined, we loved you so much, we determined not just to share the power of the word, but our own lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's how Christ shines brightest through those broken places that make no sense. Yeah, you're right. And it's hard when you're in it, <laughs> mm. but I know that's the truth that you have to hold on to and that yeah. I'll start seeing that light. Um, and I think that, I think that's why I've been passionate about women sharing their stories. And it's like through those broken stories, that is where the light shines. Yeah. But it's easier to tell stories than to be, <laughs> to be in to it. To be in it. So let me start this, Sheila, just with a quick intro. We kind of, like I said, jumped in a little differently than normal. But Sheila, you are obviously an author. As we mentioned, you're a Bible teacher. You're a best-selling author. You're the co-host of Life Today. You've been a singer, a songwriter. You're a host on the 700 Club. So you've got a lot, a lot on your resume, Sheila. But you are just, you're a woman of faith and a woman of the Lord who also has a story to share. And that's what we'll talk about today, what you've walked through and how God has strengthened you through that. Sounds good. So like I mentioned in the start of one of your books, In the Middle of the Mess, you share about your father and his tragic death. So do you want, is that a good place to start in your story? Because I know that's kind of the root of so much of your pain. Yeah, I think it's a perfect place to start. Okay. I mean, you know, like, like you, my father's brain injury and then what followed was not expected by mm-hmm. any of us. I was, it was... It, really amazing to be brought up in a Christian home in Scotland because less than 2% of our population even go to church. So to have a mom and dad who weren't just churchgoers, but who really loved Jesus was a gift. But when I was five years old, my sister was seven and my brother was was just three, I think. My father had a massive brain aneurysm Mm -hmm. and he was in intensive care for some time and not expected to live. But, But he made enough of a recovery that he was able to come home. Um, But he was, and mom kind of explained to my sister and I that dad was a little bit different. He had lost the ability to speak and he was paralyzed down the left side. Mm. But I I remember thinking, you know, I I don't care. He's my dad and he's, I was the closest to my dad because I'm a bit of a tomboy. And so my my dad would always let me do things that my mom thought were dangerous, you know, or Mm -hmm. crazy. But little by little after my father came home, he, his personality began to change. You know, he went from being this loving, caring father to becoming at times a, a confused and ultimately frightening stranger. And the last day I ever saw my dad alive, I was the only one in the room with him. And my little dog started to growl. I'd never heard her do that before. And I turned just in time to see that my dad was about to bring his very heavy cane down on my skull. 
And I, I don't remember whether I pulled it or pushed him, but he lost his balance. He, he hit the ground hard and just lay there roaring like an animal. And my mom dialed 911 and it took five men to carry my dad out of the house that day. But the last look I ever saw in my father's eyes, this man I adored was one of absolute hatred. And he was taken off to what was called back in those days, our local lunatic asylum. It's what we call a psych hospital these days. And he managed to escape and he took his own life. He drowned himself in the river behind the hospital. And as a child, I remember thinking it was all my fault. If I hadn't fought back, if I hadn't tried to stop him, you know, I felt like I was the one who took away my mom's husband and my sister, my brother's dad. Plus, I grew up with what I call a profound sense of shame because I didn't, there was nobody who could answer this question. What did my dad see in me that made him hate me so much? Because as you know, as a mom, children are the best recorders of information. You can think they're not listening, but they're missing nothing. But they're the poorest interpreters of that information. Um, And I just thought there's something really bad in me, something wrong with me that would make my dad hate me so much. Mm -hmm. And I carried that into my relationship with with the Lord when I became a Christian when I was 11. And I was told that not only did I have Christ as my Savior and Lord, but I had a Heavenly Father watching over me. I remember thinking, I've got one more chance to get it right. Whatever my dad saw in me that made him hate me, God's never going to see. I will be the perfect Christian if it kills me. And it Mm -hmm. almost did. That's so much weight to carry. And you, you talk about in your book that that wasn't something you could talk about. Like that was just kind of something your mom did not talk about his death and you weren't able to talk about the shame or the guilt. No, we never mentioned. In fact, when my mom came home from the funeral, she took every picture of my father off the tables or off the walls and put them in a little suitcase, which she locked and pushed under, his, under her bed. And we never mentioned his name again. And I think knowing my mom, I mean, my mom was a wonderful mom. I think she thought um, if Sheila wants to talk, I'll let her initiate the conversation. Right. She had no way of knowing just the, the nightmares that I had or just this feeling of there's something really wrong with me. Right. And she was doing what she could to cope. She was a single mom now of three kids yeah. and she was doing the best she could to cope through that tragedy. So absolutely. And plus, my dad, actually, I don't put this in the in the book, just because it seemed like too much information. But before my dad took his own life, he escaped one more time and came home. And it was a very dark night. Mm. And, and my mom was very afraid of my father from that point onward. Yeah. So I think it was you're right, she was just doing what she knew to do to be able to get through. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about, and there's no blueprint for this. I mean, that's what I'm learning in this whole grief journey and the regrets and all of like, oh my gosh, it's so many feelings at once and there's not a manual or a blueprint and it's hard. Like I've been through hard stuff, but grief is, this is the hardest thing. It hits you in waves, doesn't it? I mean, it's like fresh waves. Goodness. Yes. And it does not seem like reality for a long time. And you also going through your mother's death at an older age, I think you expressed that really well. Like, how is that even real that this happened? So there's not a blueprint for this journey at all. So you grow up, continue in the Christian home. Your mom is raising you guys. And you, like you said, you accept the Lord at age 11. And so did you feel called to the ministry? What kind of walk me through how you ended up in seminary? Yeah. Yeah. Share that part of it. 
Honestly, it was, I, I viewed all of life through a very skewed window from the, from the point of my father's suicide onward. Um, yeah. It was based on me impressing God, me being good enough. I mean, I remember I would often pray and say, Lord, I will never let you down. Even if all my friends decide they don't want to love you anymore, I will never, I, will, I won't disappoint you. And so I actually went to seminary to train to be a missionary in India, which okay. I had no desire to do. I mean, the thought terrified me. Mm-hmm. But I thought if I'm, I mean, God's got to be impressed with that. If I'm going to do something that I would hate, then he's got to think, well, you know, well done you. Right. Um, and the Lord actually redirected my steps. And I ended up working with Youth for Christ in, in Europe. And, and ultimately, um, made my first record there and began working some with, with Billy Graham and his crusades. Okay. So the Lord, the Lord still used that, but really you were doing that to feel like, to prove yourself to God, to your heavenly father. Like I'm good enough. You're going to love me. So you were doing all you could. Yeah. I thought it was all about me being perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just, the thought of ever losing, I mean, I became very self-protective after my father's suicide. I mean, I, I kind of built a wall around my heart mm-hmm. where I would, you know, I would, where I could be there. If you needed me, I would be there. But nobody got back to where mm-hmm. I was because, and I actually remember, I had this memory the other day of going to see Cinderella with a bunch of girls when we were young and they all just loved the movie and I hated it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't tell any of them I hated it, but I thought, this, this movie is wrong. Nobody's coming to rescue you. There is no Prince Charming. You better yeah. take care of yourself. So I know you talk about at age 19, that's when you really had the strong thoughts of suicide yourself. So walk us through that battle. All these things are internalizing. And then finally that. It was simply the despair of not being able to push through the darkness, yeah. of always feeling overwhelmed, of always feeling this tremendous sadness, much more than, you know, we all go through times when something happens and, you know, we have a couple of off days, but this was a kind of enduring sadness. And I remember one, one evening, I just, I took the underground train into London and walked, just walked and walked and walked in the darkness and the rain. And, and then ultimately, when there was nobody really around me, I climbed up onto a bridge looking over the railway tracks. And I almost I felt as if I could hear a voice just saying, go on, jump. Mm-hmm. It won't hurt. You don't have to do this anymore. And, and it was literally, one of the things I've discovered in my life is there's times when you do not have the words to pray and form a, a prayer. And literally the only thing that saved my life that night was simply repeating the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I remember just calling out the name of Jesus. And, and then with tears just streaming down my face, climbing back down over the bridge. And, and here's, here's the ridiculous thing, going back to seminary and showing up in class the next morning, you know, in my New Testament class, like nothing had happened. But with oh. my everything's good, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all good face on. Wow. And, but you still were able to pray during that time. I think that's kind of remarkable to be at that low point of suicide, but you were still able to call out to the Lord. It was the only thing that I knew to do because I had never, I mean, I'd never had a sit down talk with my mom about how I felt. Yeah. Um, and I was to discover later, years later, when I ended up in a psych hospital, how much she longed that we had been able to do that. We carried our grief and our pain separately mm. when we could have carried it together. Yeah. But it was, I mean, ever since I was a little girl, I've been 
in church. And one of the things I used to um, dread going to, but now realize was such a gift, was every Thursday night in our little Baptist church in the west coast of Scotland, there was a thing called the Junior Christian Endeavor. And one of the things that we did there was we learned Bible verses. And what I discovered many years later was I had so much of the Word of God tucked deep down inside of me. And, and I, I really believe, I mean, we know it's not just a book. We know it's a living love letter from God. But there's also, I think there's healing power in the Word of God. Yeah, absolutely there is. And I know when, like you said, that you had nothing else but to cry out to Jesus and to God. But I'm curious, because I know just my own feelings, have you, as you processed and journeyed through your father's death, were you angry at God or feel like he didn't answer your prayers or could have answered those prayers to save him? And how did you get through that and still pray? Yeah, that's a great question. And and honestly, no, I wasn't angry with God. I was angry with myself. Mm. And I thought God was angry with me. Oh, Sheila, that's a lot. That's a heavy burden. Because we, you know, and everything in our family changed after my father's suicide. You know, there's yeah. a lot of medical bills that are not covered when somebody takes their yes. own life. So we lost our home. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to move into housing that the government provided in Scotland. Um, so, and I, I felt as if I had brought the house down on my whole family and it was my fault. Wow. That is a heavy, heavy burden to carry. And so... That led in, like we said, at 19, you had the first suicidal thoughts. And then when were you diagnosed with the clinical depression? Um, Quite some time later. I was, um, when I came to America as a contemporary Christian artist, um, I was also singing at um, Billy Graham's Crusades. And I was up at a crusade in Canada. And someone from the 700 Club knew that Pat Robertson was looking for a new co-host. And so they took the tape to Pat and and showed it to him. And so when I got back from the crusade, there was an invitation to fly to Virginia Beach and co-host with Pat Robertson for for three days. And and I I did an abysmal job. I mean, it was just awful. I was clearly not the Scottish Barbara Walters. I mean, it was just, but Pat felt really strongly that I was the person that God had had prepared. And so for the next five years, I sat on television every single day and talk to people about the love of God, about the mercy of God, about the sovereignty, about the goodness of God. But I had, there was such a wall around my own heart. None of it got to seep into me. Yeah, and that's what I'm reading when your word's saying that. Like, I just, that's mind-boggling. But I guess it's not, because we do that. You know, yeah. I've taught Bible studies. I've acted like everything's okay and told other women. I mean, I think right now, being in the midst of my own hard journey i'm like okay now it's time to really believe the things that you've taught and it's it's not so easy when you're right in the middle of it so i can i can see how you did that so you did that for how many years until you did finally have a breakdown for five years five Um, years okay and i just kept i kept myself incredibly busy because i felt like i was living on the edge of a volcano and this distant rumble and so i just i was the first one in in the morning i was the last one to leave but then one morning uh, you know it's so interesting my mom's one probably her favorite verse when i was growing up was jeremiah 29 11 about god knowing the plans he has for you Mm -hmm. and i remember saying to her when i was a teenager i would just like to see the plans you know if i could Mm. make a few suggestions and because what, what was on God's path for me, I would never, ever have signed up for. Uh, isn't that the truth? Oh, goodness. Yeah. yeah. And one morning, I'm interviewing my first guest. And instead of answering my question, she kind of turned the tables on me and said, 
you know, you sit here every day asking us how we're doing. How are you doing? Mm. And there was such kindness in her eyes. And I wasn't expecting it. It was as if she just reached over and took the first brick out of my wall. And I literally fell apart on TV. I mean, I just, I started to cry and I couldn't stop. Mm. And, and eventually they just threw to a commercial break and I took my microphone off and I walked to my dressing room, locked myself in. And as far as I was concerned that day, my life was over. If you've mm. spent your whole life trying to prove to God that you've got this thing and you'll never let him down, and then you fall apart on live national Christian television, you know, where do you right. go from there? Right. And I'm going to read one of your quotes that I highlighted. It said, I had my first breakdown in 1992. I'd done everything I knew to get closer to God. I read my Bible. I prayed. I fasted for 21 days. The result wasn't a great spiritual breakthrough. Instead, I became a patient in a psychiatric ward. But you go on to say how that really was a spiritual breakthrough for you. So share how that was. I mean, that's hard for us to get our mind around that that could possibly be your spiritual breakthrough, but that really broke you down mm -hmm. to what, where God needed to reach you. So can you talk about God just reaching you in that low, low place? Because honestly, Andrea, that was my greatest fear that I would ever end up like my dad. You know, yeah. when I was growing up, people would say, oh, Sheila, you're just like your dad. And I think they meant you looked like your dad or you sing like your dad. But I, I heard it differently. I heard like, there's something wrong in you like your father. And yeah. one of these days, no matter how fast you run, it's going to catch up. And so that day when everything fell apart on TV, I, I called a friend of mine, a guy called Dr. Henry Cloud. And I said, Henry, I think I'm losing my mind. And he said, no, you're not, but you need some help and you need it quickly. So by that evening, I'm in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital and I'm the same age as my father. Oh, wow. And I remember sitting in the parking lot before I walked through those doors, I knew would lock behind me, thinking, how do you get here? How do you spend your whole life trying to be good enough and end up in a place that says you got it all wrong? It was, but you know, the interesting thing is, you know, a young nurse took me to a room that would be my home for the next month. I was diagnosed with severe clinical depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And she went through all my stuff, took away anything you could hurt yourself with and told me that somebody would check on me every 15 minutes during the night. And I thought this morning, I was on live national television. Tonight, I'm on suicide watch. How can 24 hours contain two so vastly different scenarios? Um, but the interesting thing is I, I didn't even get into the bed that first night. I took the blankets off the bed and I sat in the corner of the room with my head on my knees. I mean, I, I literally, I felt as if I'd gone to hell. I'm I'd, sure. I'd never felt so abandoned in my life. But um, at three o'clock in the morning, I had an encounter with somebody that I believed to be an angel. I was aware of people checking at my door every 15 minutes, but I never, I never looked up. But the person who came to my door at three o'clock walked all the way to where I was in the corner. And when I saw their feet, I, I looked up. I mean, it certainly didn't look like an angel, looked like a doctor maybe going off duty. But he was holding something and he, he gave it to me. And then he turned and went back to the door. And I looked at it. It was like a little stuffed lamb. It's like something you'd give a child. And when he got the door, he turned around and he just said this one thing. He said, Sheila, the shepherd knows where to find you. Mm. And then he was gone. And it was just like, I mean, it was overwhelming wow. to me. The shepherd knows where to find you. And wow. I thought of the number of times on television I had ended the program with Romans 8 and the last two verses. That nothing, nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus.
And so did you finally start believing that then in the middle, in the psychiatric word, or is that something that's still a process for you to believe that, that you don't have to prove yourself to God and that he loves you no matter what? It's certainly an ongoing process, yeah. but, the, but the greatest beginning was, was in that place because all the things that I thought made me lovable to God were gone. You know, I, I didn't, my job was essentially gone. I, I, didn't, I couldn't even put makeup on. I couldn't hide. I mean, there was nothing that I could hide behind. And I just had to check my address to realize that, you know, everything had changed. But just being, in, it, I, that's why I believe in community. Um, it's like, I felt like I suddenly I was part of a community of the broken who loved God, yeah. but didn't have all the answers. You yeah. know, some of the other people who were in the, because this was a Christian unit within a psych hospital. So there was a pastor um, who was living a double life. There was a missionary home on furlough who um, had so much anger because she became a missionary after her husband's, I mean, her sister's husband raped her when she was a little girl and she felt mm. it was her fault. That it suddenly was like all these people, as my friend Brennan Manning used to say, people whose cheese kept falling off their crackers. You know, that's, it was just, there was something so beautiful about nobody pretending to be okay. Yeah. And you share, so that's when you're for really first grasped onto community because you share, I was actually reading some of the final chapters in your, in the middle of the mess book, and you really talk about community there too, how even as years went on, like, you know, that's something that you have to have your good girlfriends. And I, I needed to hear that because that's really hard for me. Like I've met yeah. with zero friends since this all happened mm -hmm. today. After this, I'm actually meeting with one, but I don't want to let, like, I'm used to helping people yeah. I don't want to bear everything to everybody. I don't want to cry in front of people. And yeah. it's like, that spoke really loudly to me today. You know, it's so interesting, Andrea, because that's exactly how I was. <sighs> you know, it's just, and I, I don't know what it was, but I, it was very hard. I lived, I, I, I discovered it's possible to be very well known and desperately lonely. <laughs> yes, you're very right. Yeah. And that was, yeah. that was comfortable for me at the time. <sighs> but now I, I've learned the joy of what I call safe sisters. You know, yeah. two or three girls who know you really, really well, and you don't have to, and, and you don't have to always be talking. You don't have to always be unloading, but they're just safe places to go when life makes no sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, is that also, I assume, been kind of a life journey for you to get to that point? Because I'm still working on that one. And um, it's, it's, that's a struggle for me. Yeah. It, yeah. It's absolutely. I mean, I, my husband is an extrovert. He gets energized by being yes. around people. I'm an introvert. Okay, and me so, too, Sheila. Me too. And <laughs> you I'm can like, drop me off on an island <gasps> with really good books for a while and <gasps> enough coffee, and I'll just be perfectly happy. Yes, and me doing a podcast interview once a week, like that's enough social <laughs> interaction for me, which is so sad. Or, or like you like speaking to a group, but it's mm -hmm. not the one the one on one and really pouring. You're yeah. like, oh goodness, that's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's work. It's hard work, uh -huh. you know, and maintaining those kind of relationships. It's not, it's not a casual thing. It has to be intentional. And I've had to work at that. Yeah. All the years I was with women of faith, it was kind of the big joke. We had this women's conference called women of faith. And for 20 years, this core team was together and we would do, um, it would be Friday night and then Saturday until about five o'clock. And 
Lucy Swindoll, who was one of the other speakers, and Marilyn Miebert, they would also always be looking at, okay, we're going to be in Philadelphia. So what would be the best restaurant to go to on Saturday night? And they would all want to go out. And I'm like, nope, I'm going back to my room and put my pajamas on and I'm watching Everyone Loves Raymond. Oh, that's so me, Sheila. Yes, so me. Uh-huh. And so what, what they would do is they would, they would let me do it for like three weeks, but then the fourth week they would be like, nope, you're coming. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't really want to come. And they're like, yep, really not too interested in whether that. We'll meet you downstairs at six. <laughs> See, and I think it's good to have friends that push you. I yeah. mean, even yeah. the friend I'm being today, she's like, message me. Like, I know you probably don't want to, but I, yeah. really, I know you want to cancel on me, yeah. but I know and I'm like, oh, good you're for right, her. but I'm going to be there. Okay, <laughs> I will do this. So let's get back. Um, so the psych word, your low point, but you really just start feeling like you don't have to prove yourself to God. Um, but that is a journey for you as well. And I know one of the other things I noted in your story was you say at 49 years old, you began to understand the hellish dance between depression and spiritual warfare. So I want to talk just a little bit about that, the spiritual warfare. And, you know, I think that's a term sometimes loosely thrown out, but mm-hmm. um, talk about that a little bit in your life. I mean, that's where I feel like I'm at right now with some things. And I just, I'm, I'm curious to hear how that, that part of your journey and what you do with that. And I think that ties into prayer too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's one of the hardest things for me in the hospital after the first um, couple of weeks was, was nighttime. Um, For some reason, night's hard when you're in a, a difficult place. And when I would be lying in bed and, you know, all the lights were off and everyone else had gone to their bed and there was maybe a nurse on the station, but that was it. And that's when I would hear, that's when I felt the enemy would come and say to me, you're not going to make it out of here. Your dad didn't make it out of here. You're not going to make it out of here. You'll never be loved again. You'll never be special again. You're on your own, Sheila. And the only way that I knew to fight back is I would literally drag myself out of bed and I would plant my feet in the floor and I would, I would, declare things that I didn't feel were true, but I believed were true. Particularly, my most powerful one would be from Psalm 27, just the last two verses. I would say as loudly as I could without waiting the other patients, yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Because when Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about the full armor of God. The last piece he talks about is um, take up the sword, which is the word of God. But the word that's used in that particular context, it's a little W. It's not logos, which would mean the whole of the word of God. It's the word rhema. So what Paul is saying is, you know, find your spiritual daggers, find the, the scriptures that when the enemy comes against you, that you can combat the enemy of God with the word of God. And that's what I would do in the hospital. And I still do that sometimes to this day. I spend a lot of time, I I work with a TV ministry called Life Outreach International. We have a TV show called Life Today. And I I go to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, or to Bangkok, where we um, rescue girls from, from trafficking. And it's not so bad in Cambodia. I mean, the trafficking is terrible. But Thailand, when I'm walking the streets of Bangkok, it's controlled by the Russian mafia. And the sense of evil is palpable. Mm. And I, that's when I 
I take Paul's advice. I pull out those little daggers to combat the enemy with the word of God and pray through as I'm walking down the streets, praying the word of God. Mm, that's good. I, I hold on to that, what you've just said, because that's such good advice when we, like, I feel like I'm in a place, I don't know what to pray, but like yeah. you just saying, like, grab onto those scriptures and nighttime is so hard. Yeah. And I think just holding on to a few scriptures that you can shout out to the enemy when he puts the shame or doubt on you is so powerful. And one of the uh, most powerful ones for me is Psalm 23. You know, when you come to, when you look at, we've translated it slightly different to make it make sense. But you know, when he says, even if I walk through the valley, mm-hmm. we translate it the shadow of death, but it, yeah. in the original is of, of great darkness. It says, even there, I fear no evil for you are with me. Mm-hmm. Those are with are not in the Hebrew. We've added that so that the sentence makes sense. In the actual Hebrew, it says, I will fear no evil because you, me. You know, it's just, it's like this tight, that nothing could come between, no matter how dark, no matter how long, you, me. And there's, there's such, a, such visual images in scripture, you know, no understanding that in those days, the shepherd would always go ahead of the sheep to make sure there's no danger. But they would, he would always have two dogs that would come behind him to get any stragglers. And you and I, I mean, those dogs are in Psalm 23. We're going to be dogged by the goodness and mercy of the Lord for the rest of our lives. No matter how dark the night, you, me, we're together, and wow. we will be dogged by goodness and mercy. Wow. Yeah, that's a powerful, powerful image. Thank you. I needed to hear that, Sheila. So I I talked a little bit about that you've lost both of your parents. I shared that at the beginning. So let's fast forward and just talk a little bit about your mom's passing. And as somebody that's fresh in the grief journey now, I just want to hear how you got through that and processed that. So this was just a couple years ago that she passed. Is that right? Okay. And so I'm guessing it's still hard because I feel like this is always going to be hard and this is never going to seem like it that this is real. So tell me how you got through that. And I mean, I don't even know what to ask you, honestly, with that. It's just talk a little bit about that part of your grief. Yeah, it was, it was devastating to lose my mom because, I mean, I just, there was times where even when I was younger and I would be traveling around Europe with Youth for Christ or things were difficult. The one thing I always knew was there was never a night when my mom laid her head in the pillow without having prayed for me. I knew Mm. that if I was in relationships with other friends or or people had disappeared from my life, there was this constant of my mom who was a prayer warrior on my behalf. Mm. So when I got the call in the middle of the night, and nobody calls in the middle of night with any kind of news that's good from my sister, Frances, to tell me that that mom had passed. And I remember the whole, I mean, I booked a flight the next day and the whole flight just seemed surreal. Uh-huh, you know, because I, yeah. I felt like I could just pick up the phone and call her because I'd only talked to her two days before. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was I had her birthday gift sitting on a chair at home ready to mail. And, and when I got home, Scotland's different than my husband, Barry, has lost his mom and dad. And they were in Charleston, South Carolina. And there it's like they have a viewing and they, you know, we don't yes. do anything like that in Scotland. When you pass, um, they simply... Everyone's just placed in a simple pine box. There's no fancy caskets. But I called a funeral home when I got home and I said, I know this is not um, something that's done here, but I want to see my mom one last time. 
And they were really gracious. And they said, we, we will arrange that. So I remember dreading walking into this little room by myself. But the thing I wanted to do was I wanted to kneel. I mean, I knew my mom was home. I knew this was just, you know, I knew this was just the fragile clay. Right. But, I, but I wanted to kneel beside her and just say, well done, mom. Mm. You, you made it all the way home. You stayed faithful all these years. It was so hard and you kept walking. And after- oh, Sheila, you're making me cry. I'm so, I'm <laughs> no, so sorry. It's, just, it's all, it's raw emotions. It's, uh, yeah. it's okay, but I can feel, yeah. Uh, okay, keep going. And when my sister and I were going through all my mom's things and Francis said, you know, what do you want to take back with you to America? I think mom wanted you, you to have this. Well, we discovered that, um, that she'd lost her engagement ring and that was what I was supposed to have. And my sister was supposed to have the gold watch. And I said, Francis, I don't care about that. What I want is that little picture that hung above her bed all her life. Mm-hmm. And Francis said, Sheila, that's not worth anything. And I said, Francis, it's worth everything to me. Yeah. As, since I was a child, my mom had this little picture. I mean, we moved homes twice, but this was always over her bed. And it was something a friend had embroidered for her when she was a little girl. And it was just two words, yes, Lord. Oh. And that's what I brought back because I, I said, you know, Francis, every night my mom laid her head on the pillow under that declaration. And every morning she woke up and no matter the challenges of the day ahead, she woke up with a yes, Lord in her spirit. And I have it beside me right now, even as we're talking, it's on my desk, because that's how I want to live the rest of my life. God did not promise me that life would be easy, but he promised me his presence. Yes. I mean, that's a priceless memory to have of her. Mm. So how have you walked through, I mean, it has to get easier, right? I'm in week three and I'm like, this is just awful. And it's like, it consumes every thought and I feel sad. Mm, So tell me how you walk through that grief process and with the Lord. And I'm sure prayer was a big part of that. And was that an inspiration for your newest book, Praying Women? One of the things that I have learned, and I will, this is huge to me, is process your pain in the presence of God. You know, that we are invited to bring everything to him. And somehow doing that, being able to pour out all those raw emotions, saying the things that probably I didn't even mean, but I felt them, you know, all the questions, all the, you know, you could have stopped this, you could have done that, you know, all of that, being able to process that in the presence of this father who loves us. And, And honestly, I believe to the level that we're willing to be honest with God, is an indication of how much we actually trust him. If we think we have to be careful with God, our picture of God is too small. Because now I can, um, I can look, look at pictures of my mom and they make me smile now. You know, it's not, I have the pearls that she wore on her wedding day. And, uh, you know, I can, I have those things on my desk and they're, yeah, I still miss her. In fact, the other day, um, I went into Chico's. I never go into Chico's, but my mom used to like Chico's. And I went in and I thought, what am I doing in here? Because I used to go in and see if there's anything that I thought she would like. So, I mean, there are still moments that catch me unawares and and birthdays and Christmas and Mother's Day. But I'm able now to celebrate all the the wonderful things. And I'm so grateful that one of these days, you know, um, we'll all be together again. And it will just be, 
it'll be beautiful. And just talking about, did you start there in the beginning of your journey? Were you angry at God? I mean, cause that's where I feel like, I mean, I know I'm transforming a little bit, but I've just been angry at God. I don't know. It's, it's hard to pray when you're angry, but maybe yeah. that, that goes back to your book and you talking about what do you do when you feel discouraged or like God's not hearing you or you're angry at God? How do you pray through those times? Yeah. I, I think one of the most important things is that you do do that. You tell God everything. You know, I think when our, when faith gets shaken in difficult times, it's like we either decide that we're going to walk away or we are all in. Because what you probably don't know yet, Andrea, is that, you know, I believe that where your wounds are, there lies your authority. And when you walk through something that is devastatingly painful, but somehow you're still able to lift those wounds up to Christ, that you have an, you have an authority on your life now. You will be able to speak to other women and bring comfort because you have walked in the place where they are walking and you're a little further, you'll be a little further down the road and you can say to them, don't be afraid. Jesus is here. I know it looks dark to you, but I want you to know Jesus is here. Yeah. Thank you for walking me through that. I know we don't have a lot of time left and I want to talk about the book that you have coming out February 4th, Praying Women. And we've talked a little bit about prayer and the power of it. I know you do say in this book that this has been, you've written a lot of books, but this one has impacted you more personally than any of them. So can you just share in the remaining minutes, talk about that, why you wrote this book and why it just so personally impacted you? I think honestly, because I something I've always struggled with. It's like yeah. I can do Bible study, I can go out and speak, <laughs> I can do all of that stuff. Yeah. But so often when I would try to commit to, you know, I'll have a certain amount of time in prayer, I would get bored, I would get distracted. I felt like I was just repeating the same stuff yes. over and over. So I actually did a thing where one night on my Facebook page, I just said, hey guys, let's be really honest. When you hear the word prayer, you know, what do you think? And I got exactly the same answers, you know, that what I shared with you earlier. And I thought, Lord, this is a huge deal and we're all struggling with it. So I just, I, I just spent two years studying everything of people I respect, but more, you know, what does, what does God's word actually say about prayer? And then realizing that prayer was Christ's weapon of choice. And we, we get little glimpses, you know, like, like on the cross, you know, we, we get that little line from Psalm 22. But I'm sure that was as he raised himself up to be able to catch a breath and then he would sink back down on the cross again. I firmly believe that as Christ was on the cross, he was praying the Psalms. And I'm thinking if, he, if Christ prayed the Psalms in the greatest agony of his life, if he would withdraw for a whole night and go up into the mountains to talk to his father, this has got to be the, the greatest weapon that we're not picking up. But I think if we think it's moved from my to-do list onto my who I am list. It's like from the minute I get up in the morning, I'm in conversation with the Lord. I get that he just absolutely delights when I show up. It's like, the, it's like George, it's like you came. I think there's something that we're missing. And, and that's, just, that's just my prayer. That when, if people do read the book, that they would just fall more in love with Jesus, but realize how in love with them he is. Yeah, and I've read the first few chapters of it, and it's really spoken to me. Because like you, I have struggled with prayer. I have not struggled mm-hmm. with reading my Bible. I have not struggled mm-hmm. teaching Bible. Like, But for some reason, taking that time to be intentional and pray, and we know prayer is a weapon and powerful mm-hmm. and effective. And it's like, why we still struggle? But I think that's an attack of the enemy, really. Yeah that we struggle with it. One of the things you said, though, that really struck me, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, the turning point for you, 
with prayer was when you had no words left. And that was because that, that's where I'm at right now. And that's, that really spoke to me. So do you mind just talking about that? And then we will wrap up. I won't keep you all morning, but I just think that's such a powerful point in your book. Yeah, it was just at that lowest point in my life when I'm, I'm in the hospital, I'm just in a desperate place. And I had no, I had no words left. I had no great prayers. I mean, to me, it was like, God is so mad with me. I mean, even if I could think of a great prayer, he's not going to accept it because he's going to think you're a total fraud. And so literally, I mean, laying on the floor, it was just help me. That was, that was all I had left. And honestly saying to God, listen, I, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And he, feeling, I mean, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but hearing deep resounding in my spirit, I know, and I'm here. And it's, it was just, I don't know. I realize how much time I've spent my life juggling in front of God, like, look what I can do. Woohoo. Uh-huh. And he was just waiting for me just to let everything go mm-hmm. and just sit, just be there. And hear him say, I know, and I am here. It's so powerful, Sheila. And just your vulnerability and sharing that is just, it's something so many women need to hear because I think so many of us struggle with that, the performance and the appearance of looking like we have it all together. So I thank you just for being so vulnerable with that. And then talking about prayer, you're leading a national prayer event February 15th. Do you want to share just a little bit about that and then where people can go for more information on that and where you can be found? Sure. Um, uh, Maybe about three years ago, I got a call from a woman I'd never met before. And she said, uh, I've been invited to bring 20 female Christian leaders to the White House, and I would like you to come. And I said, you know what, I, I, I don't really think I want to do that. I've always tried to kind of avoid anything that's political. You know, I've always just tried to, my thing is just no, you know, I'm, I care for building up the body of Christ, evangelism and the poor. That's kind yes. of it. And she said, well, would you pray about it? And I said, okay, okay. And she called back later and she said, actually, I can only bring four. And for some reason, I felt like I was supposed to go. So I said, okay, can I meet with the four of you before we do anything else? And so I flew into Washington. We all met for breakfast. And when I got there, they were all talking about prayer. And they said, you know, it's just this, this thing that's on our heart, on our mind. It's like we feel like we're supposed to call God's daughters together to pray. And I realized the reason for me being in Washington, it was to meet these four women. It was nothing to do with the White House. It was all about these women. So we committed then that once a week we would get on a Zoom video call and pray for one another. Then we felt like, no, we need to do more. So then we, we had a retreat in a ranch in East Texas for three days where we fasted and prayed and prayed for our nation. And out of that came this movement, I guess, called She Loves Out Loud, where on February the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, we're going to have an event. It'll actually be from the studios here in Texas where I host the program, but it will be simulcast on all sorts of different platforms. And it will be, our prayer is to gather a million women across the nation. And we're going to talk about things like... um, the pro-life movement, but pray for women who've had abortions, who feel condemned. We're going to minister to military spouses. We've already got so many of the military bases, the wives signed up. We're going to talk about mental illness. We're going to talk about prodigal children. Uh, We're talking about all of those things. So people can just go to shelovesoutloud.org. And, okay. and sign up. And then you can literally, you can join by your, on your computer at home, or you can have it into your church, but it'll be four hours of, and I'm going to have some of my friends with me, people like Carol Kent, Priscilla Shire, we're going to have, 
real prayer warriors. And our thing is when God's daughters get down on their knees, the battle's not over. It's just beginning. Mm, so true. So people can join live streaming online and I'll put the link to that on your show notes. Is it something if people, cause you're in Dallas, can people also show up or is it just an online streaming to join? No, they can, they can show up at the live today studios in Euless. You would just have to go. Um, the link will also be on that page that okay. says if you'd like to be in the live audience that you can okay. click on that link. Oh, Sheila, I'm going to have to talk my mom into going. I mean, I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm like, huh, can I get my mom to head down there? We need to be part of that. That sounds really, it sounds amazing. So we will put the link to that. You have a website where people can connect with you there. Yeah, um, just SheilaWalsh.com. And on Facebook, I'm just Sheila Walsh Connects. On Instagram, Sheila Walsh One. But yeah, on my, on my SheilaWalsh.com, that's where, if, if people do want to get the book, that's where they can get the, they can hit and they'll get the free eight-week Bible study. They'll also get the audio book, me reading the book free. I've just recorded a new worship album and they'll get the first song free as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, we'll put the link to that. And again, your book coming out February 4th is called Praying Women. And you have lots of other books too that are just fabulous. And I didn't realize the one I... I have two daughters, but when I read to them when they were younger, the, the Gigi, the princess oh, one, yeah. was, you were the author of that too. So you are just have worn a lot of hats, but the biggest one is just being a beloved child of God. And I just thank you, Sheila, for being so vulnerable. But would you no, mind no. ending in a prayer for just- I would love to. Father, I thank you that Psalm 34 has told us you are close, close to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. And Lord, first of all, I just want to lift up Andrea to you. Father, you understand that kind of grief of someone you love going through something like that and then being gone. Um, I just pray for your comfort for Andrea. I love that she gets to bring all her questions and her anger and her fear. But Lord, I pray that you would wrap your arms of comfort around her. And I pray for her mom and for her brother. Lord Jesus, please just show up in unprecedented ways with grace and mercy. I pray that your comfort and grace will flood over them in waves, that just as grief comes in waves, that you would come in waves too with healing in your hands. And we ask that too for for those who are listening to this podcast. Lord Jesus, be close. You've never promised us that life would be perfect, but you've promised you would never leave us for a second. So we take you at your word and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for that, Sheila. I am crying, but at so much because I just feel the Lord's comfort. And I know this was a God-ordained conversation and a reminder of how good He is. And He gives us what we need. So I just thank you, Sheila, so much for your prayers, talking with me, being so vulnerable, just all of it. I want to thank you for giving me the privilege of being with you at this time. I don't take that lightly. That's holy ground. I hope my conversation with Sheila spoke to your heart like it did to mine. I encourage you to share this episode with a friend who may also need to hear a word of hope and be assured of God's promises for life's difficult journey. As I mentioned, you can connect with Sheila and order her books online. As always, the links we mentioned in the show will be at the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com.